Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Rife. Today on the show, we're closing our series on the films of Christopher Nolan with a discussion of his three original IP blockbusters. That would be the dream heist film Inception, the sci-fi epic Interstellar, and the World War II survival drama Dunkirk. Welcome to Film Club. Okay, welcome back again to our uh, four-part series on the films of Christopher Nolan. Uh, mm-hmm. We have reached the end of that journey. Uh, yeah. We, uh, Chris Nolan, of course, has a new film in theaters soon called Tenet. Uh, it is actually opening, as, as of this recording, it is opening in a couple days uh, overseas in, uh, in Europe and in, in the UK. And uh, it mm-hmm. will potentially be opening in American theaters uh, in a couple weeks. Um, I say potentially because during this strange time, it, it, it always feels like everything is tentative in some ways, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, I think they're probably going to go forward with it at this point. It, we, we've sort of seen uh, movies actually opened again last week. Uh, the Russell Crowe film Unhinged came out uh, mm-hmm. this week. Uh, Disney is releasing The New Mutants. Uh, it sort of seems like the seal has been broken on uh, movie theaters being open again in the States, whether or not that's mm-hmm. a good mm-hmm. idea. Uh, I got a box office report from a very optimistic producer on the film Unhinged. And what was interesting about that is that, uh, you know, they were touting the numbers and everything. and But uh, they showed the top five theaters in the country for box office. And the top two were drive-ins. So people are still leaning on the drive-in. And uh, uh, supposedly Warner Brothers is uh, resisting drive-ins for Tenet. I've heard that. They, they'll do it for areas where there's not a normal theater necessarily mm-hmm. open, but they are being resistant, I think, about areas where you could go to where there are theaters that are open that you could show it instead, which, uh, right. I don't know. We don't necessarily need to, to, to derail this entire conversation to talk about that. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah, before the show, we were talking about just what a quagmire all of this is, and it's, yeah. a, it's a very case-by-case basis kind of situation right now, I feel like. It really is. Um, in any case, though, Tenet will soon be in theaters, at least somewhere. So we've been doing this whole series just going back through his body of work. And mm-hmm. um, we, you know, we, we, we talked the first week about Memento and following his first two films. The second week was devoted to the Batman trilogy, the Dark Knight trilogy. And last week we talked about The Prestige and uh, Insomnia, sort of two films that represent... Uh, different sides of Nolan's uh, kind of give-take relationship with movie studios. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this week we're, we're, we're kind of, uh, we're finishing out uh, Nolan's filmography with three very large films he made over yes. the last decade, basically. Large his, his... in every sense. They're long, yes. <laughs> they're expensive, they've got a lot of plot. These are just big movies in every sense. <laughs> they're very big movies. And I still think it's kind of remarkable that Nolan got to the point where, where if you had asked me after Memento, you know, after he broke out with Memento, what kind of filmmaker he was going to become. I don't think I would have guessed that he would one day mm-hmm. be basically a purveyor of of huge idea-driven blockbusters. But that's sort of where we're at, you know? And a, and a household name, you know, because, like, if you want to make movies the size of Inception or Interstellar or Dunkirk and have them be successful, the director has to be a household name. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and all, I mean, all of them were sort of, adver- it's very interesting to look at the advertising. I remember when Inception was coming mm-hmm. out, it was very much, this is the first post Dark Knight movie from Christopher Nolan. Dark Knight mm-hmm, had obviously mm-hmm, been mm-hmm. this enormous cultural event, so people were like, uh, they were basically using Nolan's name uh, to to advertise. Yeah, Inception. to sell it. Yep. Right, and I think what's really interesting is that since all of his movies are essentially hits, you just keep at. I mean, you look at somebody like Antoine Fuqua, for example. Right. Antoine Fuqua, for years, was basically anytime he had a new movie coming out, it was the new movie from the director of Trading Day. So for like <laughs> oh, for like man, fifteen years, you know, and yeah. like, he like was not adding a lot of movies to that CV, at least in terms yeah. of um, of using them as an advertising hook. But with Nolan, I feel like every time he has a new movie, it's like he adds a new one that that advertisers can use to entice people to the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and you I mean think like, uh, it, there, so like, you mean like when, uh, inter, when Dunkirk comes out, they say from the director of Interstellar and they just go back to the previous film? Exactly, yeah. I mean, I think right. they use a, lo- a lot of his films, but I think he's actually to the point now where he's made enough big hits that they have to make choices about which ones they're going to use yeah. for those kind of advertisements, you know? In the marketing now, I don't think they even, like the Dark Knight isn't really part of the marketing for Tenet. Like that, 
that's sort of become its own thing at this point because the films we're talking about today are also their own thing. Totally. And I, I think what they all have in common is that they all represent Nolan basically taking a big swing using using the kind of um he kind of he kind of got a blank check, I think, after after the Batman films and especially sure. after uh, I, I you know studios basically looked at him and started to see him as somebody who could deliver. But mm-hmm. I still think it's a little bit remarkable that he's managed to to make these films that are I mean, regardless of what you think of them, they are four blockbuster films, particularly in the uh, 21st century and particularly this over this past decade. They are um, they are auturistic in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. They, they are all about his particular obsessions and interests. Um, they are ambitious. They are structurally complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what you see with these movies is you see uh, somebody willing to basically say, I'm going to ask the audience to come along with me on this. Like, like I, I, I'm, I'm going to ask of you to, to grasp some of these, some of these, at least these sort of structurally ambitious ideas mm-hmm. that these movies have, you know? Yeah, I mean, but, you know, like you were talking about the, the marketing of the films, each one building on the last one, I think by now it's not that big of an ask simply because the kinds of uh, ways that he plays with structure and time are cons- consistent. You know, across all yeah. different movies, and so like you kind of know what you're in for at this point, and so it's not like he's asking the audience to engage with something completely new and complicated every time. It's like this is my kind of complicated, and over time, audiences are uh, more familiar with what that implies and what that's going to mean in terms of the story. Totally, and I think that um, beyond that, I think that Nolan has built a little bit on that too. Though he said that mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. if you can if you can grasp what I'm doing in Inception, for example, with this sort of uh, this sort of nesting doll structure, I think you can get what I'm doing in Dunkirk, which is even yeah. more complicated in some ways. Yeah, Dunkirk is uh, yeah, dece- it's one of those movies that uh, like I'm recalling when we talked about Memento, uh, when you're watching it, it's not hard to follow, but then when you start reading about it, you realize like oh oh, that story is more complicated than I maybe even realized when I was watching yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you were to map it out, I mean, you, you really see that it's doing a lot of pretty sophisticated things in terms of cross-cutting because you're not just cross-cutting against, you're not cross-cutting between stories and space. You're cross-cutting against different durations of time. Yeah. Uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. I think we should start by talking about Inception, though. Sure. And um, the, sort of the other remarkable thing I find about this this run of films from him is that um, it's not just that no Nolan got a studio to fund movies that are, in some ways, very complicated. It's also mm-hmm. that he, uh, he, it's also that he got he got audiences to to invest in that. And I, I mean, Inception is it was a huge hit. Huge hit. Uh, I was looking up the numbers before the show, and Inception made $833 million worldwide. That's almost a billion. And these days, that's almost unheard of for something that's an original property. Exactly. You know, Ince- Inception is not based on anything. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a comic book adaptation. It is uh, just this wild idea that that Christopher Nolan had, and uh, people went to it in droves, I think partially mm-hmm. driven by the success of The Dark Knight, but also because... It looked really cool, you know? And significantly, there has not been an Inception 2 in the next 10 years. I'm sure a studio head has floated the idea to Christopher Nolan before, but significantly, these films uh, were not franchise starters. A lot of times when you have an original, uh, you know, IP idea like this, they end up getting launched into franchises, but that hasn't been the case with Nolan. That's very true. He's resisted that with with both mm-hmm. Inception and Interstellar, which I think both could theoretically be franchises. Uh, I mean, there was even mm-hmm. some rumors going around when the Tenet trailer dropped that Tenet was like a stealth Inception sequel. Oh, M Night Shyamalan style, huh? <laughs> yeah, I haven't yeah. been reading. I haven't been reading the reviews. It's possible that um, that's true. I suspect that if that were true, however, that probably would have gotten to me by now. <laughs> I, mean, like, you know, I, I kind of doubt it's a, an Inception sequel, but. I mean, people. I mean, you don't know. Maybe people. Uh, so- sometimes they ask people to keep certain things out of their reviews. Sometimes that's part of the conditions to going to the screening is that you don't mention certain things. That's true. The particular M Night Shyamalan movie you were talking about. I don't feel yep. like people were spoiling willy nilly. That's that film's connection to another movie and yeah, his yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I went to a preview screening of that. That was a surprise screening. It was truly surprising. And uh, w- uh, there was a whole, we had to sign a form saying that we weren't going to reveal X, Y, and Z. Right, right. Yeah. Um, okay, so Katie, uh, uh, last week we were talking about, when we were talking about The Prestige, I was saying I felt like The Prestige was sort of the the quintessential Christopher Nolan film. But you mm-hmm. think that that's Inception. 
Why is I that? think Inception is the er Christopher Nolan film because <laughs> it incorporates uh, uh, the reason you said the prestige, as I recall, is that it's just got a lot of his personal uh, fixations and storytelling styles mm. and things like that. I think all those themes are also present in Inception, but it also uh, it bridges this current phase of his career where they're huge blockbuster uh, films, you know, in the original blockbuster idea. And also, it's got, then the aesthetics of Inception are very Christopher Nolan to me, more so than the prestige, because the prestige has that period setting, whereas Inception has the, the sort of like tailored suits, uh, overcast, <laughs> gunmetal gray sky kind of look that I think yeah, of yeah. as the Christopher Nolan aesthetic. Also, lots of close-ups, lots of close-ups on mm-hmm. hands. Uh, mm-hmm. Water water is a major theme yeah. in the film. He loves yeah. water. I wonder if he's afraid of water. Because a question. lot of people seem to, to die from water in his films. You know? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I have to ask him. Maybe yeah, he'll... Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the, the film's premise, uh, for those who... who uh, have have not do not know. I imagine most of our readers will know the premise of Inception at this point. Mm. But yeah. uh, the film's premise is that it, it takes place in a world where uh, you can there is not there is a technology that allows you to enter people's dreams, and uh, most people use it to steal secrets. Basically, they they will go mm-hmm. into people's dreams and uh, try to extract some valuable piece of information from them. It's like corporate corporate yeah. espionage, basically. Yeah, it seems to be mostly used for business purposes to, yeah, uh, find out what your rivals are working on kind of thing. Exactly, yep. Um, and uh, Inception sort of hinges on somebody sort of pulling a... I, I love this idea, too, that you introduce this really outlandish idea. People are going to people's heads and stealing things <laughs> and then immediately subvert it by saying, no, this time they're going into their heads and planting <laughs> something to there, plant you know? things in there yeah which is it's like wait a minute i just got my head around the idea that people are stealing <laughs> things in people's heads well buckle uh, up because planting things in people's heads is extra risky <laughs> yeah. can i say this movie too has some very weird ideas about the mind um mm. so there there's like a couple moments in it i was watching it again uh, like last week or something and uh one of the ideas is that somebody says that they're, they're like these declarative sentences that people make about the about my about the mind that are meant as kind of they're sort of expositional in a way they're like explaining yeah. the rules of the world but at one point um during his like pitch to Ken Watanabe, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character named Cobb, uh, he sort of had he, he says that once once you have an idea, it's impossible to get rid of it. Yeah, like, I this movie when? doesn't really this movie doesn't really engage with uh, I would say humanity as a biological entity. Like the mind <laughs> is a very abstract thing. It's not you know it's not a brain with synapses firing in this movie. It's a wholly abstract <laughs> concept. The mind. <laughs> and like, I just feel like it's ideas about thinking and about the mind. Some of them are a little confused. There's another moment when um, when Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character he plays. Uh, so DiCaprio plays, he, he's sort of an expert in the field of, of uh, mind theft, one might say. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is like his second his second in command. His, uh, he like regularly goes on these jobs with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says at one point, once, once somebody gives you an idea, you know that you got it from somewhere else. And I'm just thinking like, that's How not true. How do you know that? Yeah. <laughs> that's not true. I mean, we internalize other people's ideas all the time. Like sure. you will think, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I've been writing a review before and I've, I've written an idea and then I've thought, wait a minute. Did I come up huh. with that? <laughs> wait, yeah. I think maybe I read that somewhere, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so no, I that's... think people do that all the time. <laughs> I think people do that all the time too. And what, what jumps into my mind is sometimes you'll quote a movie or something and not even realize that you're quoting something. Yeah, it's totally. Just, it's become integrated into your brain. <laughs> That's bullshit, Nolan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I, I don't think he's especially concerned with, uh, well, certainly not realism, but also just like the, uh, it has its own internal rules and that's all it really cares about. It's not really uh, engaged with anybody else's ideas of the yeah, mind yeah. and how it works or anything like that <laughs> certainly stand alone in that way <laughs> it has a lot of rules too i mean um, there are ellen page plays this character who becomes uh, we should say the, the plot ends up revolving around um dicaprio's character named Cobb, who does this who, who does this professionally is is basically hired to go into someone's head to, to a character played by cillian murphy uh to go into his head and plant an idea 
Um, it, it's it's a big corporate espionage scheme. His his rival, uh, his his uh, sort of corporate rival, wants him to dissolve his father's company, and mm-hmm. uh, so DiCaprio basically has to put together this team. I mean, it's basically a heist movie. I mean, it's like Ocean's Eleven or something, where uh, DiCaprio goes and finds he finds a character played by Tom Hardy is going to help him out, um, and he goes and sees uh, Ellen Page plays this student who is going mm-hmm. to um, she works as an engineer. It's her job to kind of um, to, to build the world. Yeah, she's the, the architect who designs it, and it's all based on uh, mazes. Yeah, totally. And yeah. she's she's a purely expositional character, I would say. Oh, purely, 100%. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure why she has to go in there with them. I still don't quite understand yeah. that. Why they all have to go, I don't quite know. But, I, so, you know, that's, that's the plot of the movie. But, um, you know, speaking of this being a very self-contained thing that's really only concerned with its own inner workings, like you were saying, this is a corporate espionage thriller. Uh, the the stakes, uh, you really have to read between the lines to have the future of humanity hanging in the balance of this situation. <laughs> yeah, because it's basically just two corporate barons sort of sniping at each other, mm-hmm. and one of them trying to undermine his his basically his corporate rival. Um, right, and all the tension and all the suspense is internal because the the thing you're worried about is the fate of all these people inside the dream and if they're going to be able to get out. Yeah. I mean, there are some life and death stakes within the dream, which, again, the, the movie has to explain in great detail because uh, it, it even starts breaking its own rules. I mean, early in the film, they suggest that if you die in a dream, you just wake up. But then the movie has to say, no, if you're going deeper in, into the layers of the dream, if yeah. you die, you will fall into the subconscious or something. So it's like yeah. not only establishing like rules, it's like compounding them and changing them as it goes, you know? Yeah, no, it definitely does do that. There's a lot of like, well, I know I told you that last time, but I was either lying or this is different. There's <laughs> yeah. a lot of a lot of that going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember thinking when I first saw Inception that for a movie about dreams, it actually is awfully literal in some ways. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I mean, which I think is partially the point. I mean, one of the things is in order for them to be able to navigate somebody's mind, they have to make the dream space rational in some ways mm-hmm. um, but I, th- I, so I think that makes sense at the same time I watch it and I think what somebody like somebody who actually had an interest in something like dream logic might do with this mm. you know there's a scene where DiCaprio says to um, to Ellen Page when he's like sort of pitching her on becoming part of the team he says it's your chance to build cathedrals entire cities things that never existed in the real world we see none of that. Like she basically creates um, a city, a hotel, and um, a uh, the third layer of the dream, which uh, it basically is like a bad level of the N sixty four James Bond gold. Yeah, game. I was gonna say it's like a James <laughs> yeah. Bond villain layer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose there is some of that in. Um, this is an idea in the film that I think is interesting, and I do actually wish they had developed a little more. Was sort of like the MC Escher logic of things turning in on themselves. Yeah. They, they show it visually in some kind of splashy scenes, but they don't, especially in terms of Ellen Page's character, they don't really uh, flesh that out so much. It's just something that's presented as neat. Yeah, they don't use it much at all. I mean, it Mm -hmm. almost feels like Nolan uh, giving us, like, some money shots because he he knows that we'll want to see some cool stuff like that in a movie about dreams because Mm -hmm. I think he's mostly not interested in the reality-bending capabilities of dreams. I mean, the, the... the movie, in some respects, is a heist movie, and it's interested in its internal logic, and it's interested in the possibility in in what it's doing with time. I think one of the things, one of the through lines of of Nolan's whole filmography is that he is very interested in time and relativity. Um, yes, and there's a lot of that. I mean, I I think that in so much as Inception works, I think it is uh, it's very clever about how it's. Uh, how it basically is nesting these different worlds into each other. There's a lot yeah. of fun in that, you know? Yeah. It's not necessarily a negative thing that the movie builds so much of a world that even in a two-hour and 28-minute runtime, it's not able to explore every corner of the world. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Sure, of course. Um, that's actually one case maybe for why this thing could probably sustain a sequel if he wanted to make one, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just so much more you could do. I would just yeah. love to see somebody like David Lynch play with this premise. You know, oh, somebody who... <laughs> Somebody he does. He just <laughs> everything yeah. he does is dream logic. That's his whole <laughs> deal. <laughs> it's like the same thought I have when I'm watching like a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, which is that mm-hmm. this does not feel enough like 
like a dream. And and again, yeah. in Inception, they do play with that idea. They say that to the to the to their marks, it isn't supposed to feel like a dream. It's supposed to feel as close to reality as possible. Uh-huh. I just I can't help but look at this thing and think, man, I wish they played with the endless possibilities of like dream logic a little bit more. Yeah, they do. Well, most of the cool stuff they do is, you know, more physics. Like there's a whole sequence where in one of the levels, uh, in the top level, they're falling off of a bridge. And so Mm -hmm. in the level below that, there's no gravity. And and the way that, um, you know, the sort of imaginary physics of it can does some kind of interesting stuff. And that's a phenomenal sequence too. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. glad you brought that up because I think that this Inception, one of the things Inception did was I think it started to establish that um, that Nolan could really handle this level of spectacle. Mm-hmm. Um, I had my doubts on that for a while, honestly. I mean, I, I think when we talked about the Batman films, we talked about how he he made a fairly smooth transition into that level of filmmaking. Yeah. But I still felt largely that a lot of his films, occasionally with the action sequences, felt a little a little like spatially incoherent occasionally um, oh yeah i i agree yeah especially in uh, batman begins you see some of that where it's like he he took to spending the money immediately yeah but, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but staging yeah. the big epic sequences took a little bit longer exactly um and i but i but i do think this one actually has some really great sequences in it and mm-hmm. i think the the fight in the hallway with joseph gordon levitt where he's like fighting goons and there's no gravity i think is a yeah. really there's a reason that i think that is when a lot of people think of inception i think that's the scene they think of um yeah. and i think that has I been actually... a little influential Oh, totally. I think that that sequence has definitely been influential. And actually, my favorite thing about that sequence is how everybody else is sleeping, and he uh, he wraps, like, I don't know what it is, like electrical cords around him and has this whole complicated uh, uh, plan with an elevator to try to yeah. shut them awake without, without there being any gravity. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I do love that stuff, definitely. Yeah, that part's um, pretty cool. <laughs> am I crazy to think that this could also be a... I, I, last week I was talking about how I thought that prestige might be a, a, might be a metaphor for cinema and, and mm-hmm. for uh, the arrival of cinema. And uh, am I crazy for thinking that this might that this whole thing might be a bit of a metaphor for filmmaking too. I mean, so, I mean, he like, you know, I mean, he's putting together this team, like this, this team to pull this heist, but I mean, a lot of them are serving the functions that somebody might serve on a, on a production, on a film production, you know? I mean, they're, oh, they're, they're building worlds. I mean, Hardy's character at one point is literally playing another person. He's basically an actor within this world, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. There's that whole sequence where he has to fool um, he has to fool Cillian Murphy to think that he's talking to his business associate. Um, so, you know, you have an actor within the world. You have people who mm-hmm. are basically scripting this reality. And if you think about I mean, if you wanted to, again, this might be me reaching a little bit, but I mean, I, I do think that if uh, if you wanted to think of this as a metaphor for filmmaking, what is Nolan saying? That we use our art, we use films to put ideas in people's heads, you know, to, to change the way that people think. Head. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, I'm, I'm going to be honest. Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. This thought had not occurred to me before because, like yep. you were saying before, this film is so literal about its concept that I, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't really think about it in those sort of terms at all, honestly. <laughs> I, I think about this film more as like, uh, you remember the game Mousetrap where there's that long... Yeah. It's like a game of Mousetrap where he drops the, the ball and then the whole movie rolls through. And, and it's so single-minded and it's... Uh, it's like a Rube, a, a Rube Goldberg device almost. Yeah, 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 yeah. Only yeah. a Rube Goldberg device is inherently pointless. And this one is more like, I, I think it does have an end goal in mind. It does. I, 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 let me ask you this. Does this movie get to you on any sort of emotional level? No, it's just it's just cool. You're just like, ah, that's cool. You know, I saw I this movie in to, 70 millimeter uh, at the music box. And it's quite a spectacle when you see it in 70 millimeter. I bet it looks great. I Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think that it wants to have an emotional kick of some sort. Mm. Um, I mean, the whole the whole thing is built around. Uh, so DiCaprio's character, Cobb, has uh, like like many Nolan protagonists, has lost <laughs> a wife. <laughs> he has a dead wife. Um, and <laughs> The film is kind of built around uh, his feelings of regret about that, and uh, his wife, played by uh, Marion Cotillard, uh, is, mm-hmm. appears to him as a projection in his mind. And I think that we are meant to all that stuff about him and his wife. I think is supposed to be the kind of emotional core of this. thing. Yeah, I agree, um, but I, it doesn't really do much for me, to be honest with you. Number one, because it's kind of an old saw. 
even mm-hmm. in within Nolan's filmography of the dead wife, you know, it's a it's a it's a trope anyway, and it's a trope for him in particular. And so for me, you know, it just doesn't resonate as much. And also, uh, like at the, that, the film gets a little convoluted when they start really unraveling the mechanics of that situation to me. And so it doesn't really do a lot for me emotionally now. Yeah, I think my issue is that we get no real sense of the relationship between Cobb and his wife. Right, um, right. You know, it's not like she's a character. I mean, even before, no. even when we're seeing her in memories, as opposed to the projection version of her, she's not a character, you know? And uh, because it's just a concept, like almost everything else in yes. Inception. You know, Inception yeah, is like, yeah. it's like, it's like a cool contraption of a film. Is, is the way that yes, I think about it. Exactly. Um, I'm constantly sort of admiring its moving parts and impressed by it that it even exists. I mean, the fact that 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 a studio gave Nolan as much money as they did to make this thing is impressive to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't speak to me on any sort of uh, real emotional or thematic level. Yeah, I would say that emotionally, this movie is pretty pretty chilly. Uh, yeah, I agree. I also think of it as like a, a, a fantastic device that you you go ooh ah as it you know it twists and turns and everything. But uh, it, it it doesn't. Mm, I wouldn't say that it doesn't stick with you, but I just don't think that it. Yeah, I don't think that it is all that moving emotionally. Uh, it's like a magic trick, the way that he yeah. described. You know, the, the way in the Prestige, you know, you talk about a magic yeah. trick. That's kind of what he's doing with Inception. Um, it's actually one of uh, I I don't want to say my least favorite. It, I, it's not one of my favorite Nolans because, I, but I am sort of impressed with its existence. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no, um, I, I like this movie. I think it is the quintessential Christopher Nolan movie for the reasons that I said. And yeah, I mean, honestly, I think I would rather have a movie that is just like flashy and neat and cool and the emotional stuff is kind of secondary because if he had really foregrounded that relationship and it didn't ring true then that could have sunk the movie I think yeah and and That's true. I and I don't really mind just uh, I don't mind a fireworks show <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and um, I've I've defended Nolan from on this on this very podcast from charges that he's um, that he's a filmmaker who has no passion, that there's no humanity in his films, because I think there actually there is quite a lot of that, and mm-hmm. that feels like a pretty good segue into talking about Interstellar. Yes, uh, which yes, definitely uh, plays the emotional angle more. So something that I read about Interstellar that made the movie make a lot more sense to me is that this was originally a Steven Spielberg project. Wow, that makes he, so much sense. Doesn't that make so much sense? <laughs> it does, yeah. Because the first um, half hour is a Spielberg movie. I mean, a lot of it, I think, is Spielberg. Yeah. I mean, so, so people, when this came out in 2014, now he had made, at that point, um, he did Inception in 2010. Uh, the final Batman movie came out in 2012. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards was Interstellar in 2014. And um, Honestly, every two years is a really good clip for gigantic projects like this. It is. It's quick work. <laughs> even, even like to conceptually figure these films out, I can't exactly. imagine how fast he does that. But um, so he, when the movie came out, I feel like people were straining to compare it to Kubrick and mm-hmm. to Tarkovsky. And I looked at it and I thought, I-, I see a lot of Spielberg in this thing. And I also see, honestly, and this is not an insult, I will say, because I, I do not consider <laughs> oh, this an go. insult. <laughs> I think there's a fair amount of Shyamalan in it too. Actually. Oh, okay. Um, and it's kind of gooiness and it's sort of new age. There's there's a kind of new age spirituality to it. Even there though- is a little bit, yeah, because they keep talking about they. There's this mysterious they, and they uh-huh. don't really make clear if it's aliens or God or what. I, it's left open-ended on purpose, I think. Right. I mean, though the film is, is steeped in some real science, and I think there is an aspect of this that is hard science, I think his interest in relativity, which is one of the most fascinating yeah. things about the film, is very science fiction. I agree. It's my favorite thing about the movie is the relativity stuff. Isn't that stuff fascinating? It's I mean, so the- interesting, and the and it fits in the, like, you know, for a filmmaker who's got a lot of skill with playing with time, it works really It works really well. I re- that That's my, like, I think I like that more than the emotional part again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but I think it feeds into the emotional part, too, Mm, because, mm -hmm. I mean, so um, I feel like we should at least lay out what this movie is. Yes, Um, yes, we'll backtrack a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Matthew McConaughey plays uh, this, uh, basically this former pilot who, uh, we're in this world, basically, we're in a very dystopian version of of the world and of the United States. It's 2067, I believe. Yeah, it's the year 2067, uh, and there's a new Dust Bowl on. Totally. Um, environmentally, we're fucked, basically. So it's actually mm-hmm. probably pretty similar to what 
2067 might really look like. Actually. Yeah, that's my other favorite thing about this movie is the eco element. Yeah, totally. And uh, so he is working as a farmer now. Most people in America are now working as a farmer because there's a huge shortage of food. And uh, we basically need people to be feeding the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, with the help of his daughter and and some metaphysical stuff that the movie eventually explains, <laughs> he stumbles upon. I, I actually really love this idea, too. I think it's really fun and nerdy. But he stumbles upon the remnants of NASA. And NASA is basically operating at this point underground. Yeah, almost, Na- NASA like is the protocol. Justice League in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, NASA's I thought of totally like, uh, the Justice League. <laughs> I thought of like when, in a Mission Impossible movie when they have to like disavow. Basically, they're yeah. almost like working uh, like off the grid. Like yeah, totally. Yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's a secret base. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, they're basically they have decided that. They need a backup because Earth is might not make it. Mm-hmm. So they have found a way. They, they have basically found through a wormhole a way to go to another galaxy. And uh, there are a, a bunch of potential planets on the other side of this galaxy. They've sent expeditions out there, which I will say this. Can I mention this too? Um, yeah. It's weird to me that they would send one person to each of the planets, I have to say. Why would you mm. not get a team? You really don't have people who would be willing to go? I don't know. I mean, it's true. They're not little tiny pods or anything. You know, I mean, the reason they sent people up in space by themselves at first is because they just had those little teeny tiny little, you know, throwing metal balls into space. But yeah, yeah. they have full-size ships. They have ships. They one. could send yeah. more people. I mean, I think that the partially the idea is that it's sort of, it's presented as it's kind of a suicide mission mm-hmm. because there are three different planets in this galaxy and they're basically rolling the dice and hoping that one of them will be hospitable and that maybe human life can continue on one of these planets. So the bulk of the film is uh, Cooper, again played by Matthew McConaughey, leading mm-hmm. this team on this ship uh, to basically to go to go find out what happened to those other teams and yep. if any of the planets are hospitable. Yeah, um, and some of them seem promising, but, you know, there's... Maybe they're maybe those uh, data is unreliable. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, there's this brilliant sequence early on in the film, though. Uh, uh, this is, by the way, a very long film. It's it, I, I think that it is Nolan's it's longest. About if I'm not three mistaken. hours. Yeah. It's just shy it's, of three it's, hours. Yeah. It's epic too. It's several movies put together. You know, like uh, it is. You mentioned I, I to me. Uh, I think this movie is uh, like it starts off as a Spielberg film and then it gradually turns into a Kubrick film. Like it hybrids with a Kubrick film as it goes on. In my that's so that's sort of like AI, one might say. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, just with the equation reversed, maybe? Yeah, um, right. <laughs> yeah, I remember feeling kind of overwhelmed by it on first mm-hmm, viewing. And I think mm-hmm. part of that is that the mix, at least in a movie theater, this is this is me again saying that Interstellar is a movie that was obviously made to be, to, to be seen on a giant screen. And yeah. yet I watch it now and I feel... I, I'm able to key into elements of it that that I think I was kind of missing because on the big screen it is an overwhelming experience. It's loud as shit. It is such a loud movie. It's one of his loudest. <laughs> and there's just so many different components to it in terms of what it's trying to do. I mean, each planet is mm-hmm. almost like its own movie. It is. Um, you know. Uh, but the sequence I was referring to, the one that I think is kind of the, I think it's the best scene in the movie, and I think it's the one that uh, really, if you wanted to make the case for Nolan as a a, as an, a filmmaker who is genuinely interested in human emotion, I think okay. you, would, you would cite this one, and it, it actually, but it actually builds straight out of the relativity angle, which is they go to that planet that, um, by the way, standard standard spoiler warning that we've been giving every episode. We're going to talk about the details of these films, right? So if you haven't we won't seen, won't say the movie, how it ends, but yeah, exactly, you're going to get a little uh, bit of detail. So the first planet they go to is this one that is uh, basically covered in water, and it, it's uh, impossible for them probably to set up shop there. They go down to the surface, but it's established before they go down that something like every hour on the surface of the planet is like seven years mm-hmm. um, because of relativity and gravity and uh when they return to the ship things do not go great on the planet and when they return Mm -hmm. to the ship 23 years in earth time has passed yeah so you get this scene of mcconaughey sitting down and watching messages from his children as the years pass and for him it's been a few hours for them it's been like almost 25 years and he watches them kind of give up on his 
he watches him give up hope that he's still alive, like in real time in these messages. In real time. It's brutal. (laughs) Like it is, I think you have to be as much of a robot as, uh, as the robot on board Tars to not feel something about that <laughs> scene. I enjoy Tars, scene. by the way. I think I Tars, really like him. Tars is a like belongs in the pantheon of great movie robots. I think well, I really like for, Tars. For one thing, he it's it's really unintuitive the way that they've constructed him. I mean, I feel like I'd never seen a robot quite like that before. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, the one that's just constructed with almost these pillars that can move around. Um, yeah, like, but I really like his personality too. You know? I do too. I mean, yeah, <laughs> there's this running gag about Cooper constantly taking his jokes, like his humor settings down, because they're at like 100% at the start, and he's like making these more, these, these sort of, he has this sort of gallows humor, and he just keeps dipping the, the humor down in percentage. Uh, um, which is very funny, because uh, no one ever accused Christopher Nolan of being a cut-up, so... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's kind of funny that that's an element in the film. But to me, in some ways, Interstellar does feel like him reconciling the part of him the kind of chilly uh, intellectual side of his filmmaking with with a very real but often unacknowledged emotional aspect to his films. Mm-hmm, like the, mm-hmm. the, the movie feels like a reconciliation between those to me because it is in some respects being trying to operate as a hard sci-fi movie, but it's also, as you said, kind of a gooey Spielberg movie too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh well, uh, mention, I mentioned Spielberg. So, yeah, originally this uh, this concept for Interstellar was uh, conceived by the, the team that did Contact back in 1997. And they started working on the concept, and then Steven Spielberg was attached to direct. And then, you know, like studio stuff. Uh, Spielberg, DreamWorks moved over to a different studio. And, uh, and so they brought Jonathan Nolan on to develop the script. And eventually, you know, Christopher Nolan came on board, too. And Nolan spent many years on this script you said something about just grappling with the concepts something you know looking into like the development of the movie something that i've noticed is a lot of these ideas he had for a while before he actually got the chance to make the movie inception was the same way he had the idea back during the insomnia days he had written a treatment back in around the time of insomnia but didn't make the movie until later and so that may you know they're not pulling it out of their ass these are all ideas they work on right. for a really long time before they actually execute them and and maybe that's the reality but i mean we were discussing a, a few minutes ago this idea that uh, it's kind of amazing that he, he for a little bit there was making one of these every two years mm-hmm. but in reality the gestation process for these films is a lot longer exactly. something like interstellar reaches back many years which makes sense because i i think to write this script you would need some time <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Just because because of, like you were saying, the hard sci-fi elements and uh, the the way that it uh, I think it does a really good job of conveying the concept of relativity in a uh, like in a narrative way. You know, Mm -hmm. they don't over intellectualize it, but you understand the concept. Totally. Uh, So what how do you fall? Where do you fall on this one now? like it pretty well i like it better Mm, i think i like inception a little better than interstellar because and the thing about interstellar is i was watching the movie and the whole time i was going yeah this is good i dig it i get it i really like oh i love all the um all the sort of big epic uh, flight through space kind of stuff. Whenever they have those big mm-hmm. sequences in space, there's one where they fly, uh, they, they pilot the ship into a black hole. Like that stuff is awesome. That stuff's really cool. But I think overall, if I'm looking for a film about like sad dads in space, I'm going to have to go with Ad Astra. I like Ad Astra. I prefer that film, I think. I think I might too. Um, although I think they're different in a lot of ways. They um, are. This one, it kind of clicked for me a little bit more okay. on second viewing. I remember thinking at the time, I mean, um, I think I said earlier that I remember feeling like this thing just kind of overwhelmed me a little bit. Yeah. Um, there are aspects of it. I could see that. that. I did not see this in the theater. I've only seen it at home, so. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I, I saw it. I mean, I saw it not even, not just on the theater, but on an IMAX screen. Woo! And uh, <laughs> I, I felt bombarded by it a little bit. Yeah, no you kidding. Know? Um, <laughs> I, I think, but in, as with um, with the film he made immediately before, The Dark Knight Rises, I think it benefits from repeat viewings and mm. from uh, seeing aspects of it that uh, that kind of maybe get a little overshadowed and obliterated by just the, yeah. pure, the, the pure scope of it. Uh-huh. Um, what kind of clicked for me this time watching it is that I think the whole film is really about squaring your own wants and needs and interests against like a greater goods. 
basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that plays yeah. across that that plays out across the arcs of multiple characters in this film. I mean, Cooper's decision fundamentally to leave his family and go to space. I mean, that is the emotional that's the emotional arc of the film, and it, it's all about him saying basically, I have to be a bad father in order to be a good human in this case. Yeah, um, and um, this is a plot point. It's not a huge spoiler, but w- that I mean, that's also there. It also shows up in the film in a couple different places like that. There's mm-hmm. Anne Hathaway's character. Mm-hmm. She's a scientist who's also on this flight. Uh, her father is Michael Caine, who's, um, you know, uh, spearheading the whole project. And she leaves her father behind to go to go mm-hmm. out to space. And... Um, and part of the plan is so this is they call this plan A, the idea of finding another planet for humanity to live on, um, and then flying everybody there to you know moving the population of Earth to this place. But they also have plan B, which is if they don't think they're going to be able to make it back, they have a bunch of fertilized embryos on board to start humanity over somewhere else. Yep. That's yeah. right. Um, and but even like even I mean, she, most of the characters in this film are have an element of pragmatism to them. But yes. even Hathaway, we find out at some point in the film, her character has has feelings for one of the scientists that went to the planet. So the question of even where they go, like which planet they go to, is complicated by these human relatable feelings she has. Yeah. Um, yeah. And eventually Matt Damon shows up um, and. I don't want to say too much about that because we're approaching later in the film, but I will yeah. say that Matt Damon's whole character arc in this film is based is also comes down to this battle between self-interest and the greater good. Yeah, um, it plays you know, out a different way. Even the Nolan films that you know maybe might not work for uh, you uh, like emotionally, they might not move you. This one doesn't really move me that much either, frankly. But they're always very well developed thematically (laughs) dude Mm -hmm. knows dude loves to develop a theme and he's good at it and i'll give him credit for that (laughs) i would agree yeah (laughs) i i i um i liked this a lot more on second Mm. viewing than i did before and there were even things that like that i found kind of silly the first time around that i found less silly this time There's, there's a moment early on in the film where um it's revealed that the U.S. has started basically the official line of the U.S. is that the NASA landing was faked and that that's what they're teaching in schools. And I remember seeing it in theaters and being like, that's ridiculous. People wouldn't believe that after all these years. But well. no, honestly, <laughs> six years later, I think there is a very specific portion of the country that if some, uh, if if somebody if the right person told them that that was true, they would believe they it They would believe it. Yeah, totally. I know. <laughs> I guess I just feel like this movie's so big and so epic and it has so many big ideas and big sequences. Yeah. And it's just so big that the 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 huge human part of it feels a little small to me you know it doesn't okay. like it the, the the that part gets overshadowed by the sheer scope and uh of the thing that makes sense now dunkirk in its own way is a big film i mean it's um mm-hmm. it, it's an elaborate production in a lot of ways there's a, well you know it was relatively thrifty for uh christopher nolan uh inception and interstellar both had a budget of 160 million this one they cut corners it was only a hundred million dollars <laughs> well but in today's day and age that actually is i mean the, the sad truth is we, we talk it's a lot fairly about standard the... for a big blockbuster movie isn't it uh i think it's actually a little lower than, oh, really? than what a standard blockbuster talk, uh, normally costs, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think $100 million is now considered uh, economical in terms Whew. of what Hollywood likes to spend on these kind of movies. Um, but in other respects, it, 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 it's a smaller film, I think, than at least the few that he made before it. I mean, it's his yeah. shortest since following. Yeah. Um, no, I actually, do- uh, when I went to rewatch this one, I actually double-checked the running time because I said, that can't be right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Less than two hours, what? <laughs> no, it is, yeah. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that the film is interested in uh, sort of seeing the human scale in this big historical event. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it, it keeps us very locked into... Uh, a, a decidedly human perspective on this story. Yeah, and um, and like ground level, you know, it does take oh it yeah. down to individual. Like it's this giant battle. Uh, the the number they say there's like three hundred thousand soldiers stranded or something like mm-hmm. that. But really, I mean, even with the multiple plots, there's no more than what a dozen. You know, speaking part characters. There really aren't that many. There aren't many. No. Yeah. Um, even even with there being three different uh, periods of time going on. Yeah. yeah um, explain that. That it, it's a little it, it's 
like I well, said up top, it's deceptively <laughs> complex because it's not hard to follow. But then you're like, oh, wow, a lot went into it. There's a lot going on. Anyway. it's a, I think it's pretty complicated in some ways. It is. I mean, so the film is dramatizing uh, this sort of major historical event in uh, it, it's actually become kind of a cornerstone of one could say like British national identity. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it is the uh, during World War II the evacuation of Dunkirk, uh, the beaches of, of, of France, basically. Uh, a the the, Ger- the German soldiers had had uh, forced uh, a number of Allied troops from from France and 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 Britain and um, and uh, Belgium to uh, retreat to the beaches, basically, and where they mm-hmm. were essentially sitting ducks. And yeah. uh, the evacuation of Dunkirk, uh, basically, what, what basically happened was in the uh, sort of the last week of May and first week of June, a number of civilian uh, sea crafts uh, and, and ships sort of came to and and rescued these soldiers that were stranded on the beach. Yeah, um, and crossed uh, thousands the British, of Allied troops. Crossed channel. the 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 channel. Yeah, and I, yeah. I've never um, seen the channel in real life. Uh, I know that swimming across it is possible, but very difficult. Do you know like yeah. how long of a boat ride it is? Is it a? I don't know. I don't know that exactly. I, the it's movie not a long, makes it it's seem not a like it's a. One. Yeah, the movie, but the movie makes it seem like uh, you know because one of the perspectives is a little little tiny skipper boat, and it makes it seem like that it's going to be a huge deal for this thing to cross the the channel. Yeah, well, I think only in the sense that it's dangerous. I think the mm. actual amount of time that it's taking is not that long. I mean, there's even a line in the movie where uh, where one of the one of the the superior officers basically says, "We have men who are like going out there to swim because they can literally see if they if they." If they kind of strain their eyes, they can literally. You feel like you can almost even see Britain from yeah, from, yeah, yeah, from, yeah. From yeah. the beach, you you'll have people swim the English Channel, um, but yeah, it's it's supposed to be like a feat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a kid, have you ever been like you better ever been in like Lake Michigan or something, and mm-hmm. you feel you can see the land across the way, and you think I could swim to that, and you get a little further <laughs> out, and then you're like, oh no, I oh, have to turn uh, back. This is very. I bad definitely idea. can't do this. Yeah, I'm gonna drown. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, uh, I grew up by rivers, so I don't oh, have got that it. experience. As Different much. experience. Could, yeah, we could see right across the Ohio River, but uh, got it. But I have swum in, swam in Lake Michigan as an adult, and it, it's a little freaky. Like it's you get out there and you're like, oh, wow, this is a this is a big lake. It's oh a my big god, bo- it's a big body of water for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, the film sort of uh, looks at that of that at that very famous historical event, the evacuation, uh, through three th- through uh, three different perspectives. Um, and so you recently, when we were talking about Memento, mm-hmm. you described Memento as, you said, it's like you're reading a book, but you read the chapters in reverse chronological order. So you right. start with chapter 28, and then you read chapter 27, and then you read chapter 26. Right. Um, Dunkirk is doing something somewhat similar, and I think you can use you can kind of use a metaphor to, to, to describe what it's doing as well. Uh, I'm going to borrow from Mike D'Angelo, one of our regular contributors to the film mm-hmm. section, um, and he wrote about when he was writing about Dunkirk for our best of 2017 coverage. He wrote that watching it is like simultaneously reading a novel, a chapter, and a sentence that are all converging on the same single word. Um, yeah. So the. The idea is that they're they're cross-cutting not just among three different subplots, but those three different subplots are unfolding over different durations of time. Right. We um, we get two soldiers that are trying to get off the beach, are basically trying to escape, and their storyline unfolds over maybe a week. Um, yeah, we get, it's like... Uh, it's a week. Uh, it's like a week, a day, and an hour. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, the the other one is we have a civilian sailboat that is crossing the channel to Dunkirk um, to help evacuate the soldiers, and that's a trip that takes them about a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get Tom Hardy, who is in an airplane. Uh, with a typically muffled uh, Tom Hardy <laughs> yeah. voice, always putting Tom Hardy in a mask. You know, uh, <laughs> too handsome. <laughs> answer, yeah. Um, so he's in an airplane. He's providing sort of aerial support for um, for uh, the soldiers on the beach, and mm-hmm. his his particular storyline plays out over a single hour. Now, obviously, eventually these things are converging. These three different stories. We, right. So uh, we're seeing the week play out. We're seeing the day play out. Play out. We're seeing the hour play out. Eventually, they will all be playing out simultaneously. Mm-hmm. What I find kind of remarkable is not just that Nolan keeps this coherent, but that he has fun revealing certain things 
uh, through that structure. I mean, like yeah. for example, Cillian Murphy, who is a, obviously is a, he's a regular in in Nolan's yeah. filmography. It's he him. Should... Him and Hardy are the two regulars in this one, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, but Murphy plays a soldier who uh, during that second. That, that that second uh, part of the film uh, who the the British civilians find basically in the water and he's been traumatized by what he's experienced they bring him aboard he's shell-shocked and we don't find out until a little bit later even though this takes place chronologically before them finding him we don't find out later what happened to him when we meet him during the course of the week that we're seeing yeah. playing out yeah. so it's it's very it's very sophisticated I think chronologically what they're doing but it's never hard to follow right yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, it, it's easy enough to follow that it's possible that you could see the movie and like not realize until afterwards what it what it's up to in terms of that time because there are things that you notice like that, like uh, finding out the backstory for Julia Murphy's character later after they pick him up. Uh, but you, it, it's relatively subtle, I, I think. I don't think this movie is quite as showy with its time tricks as, say, uh, the Prestige or Inception. No, and I think that I think that uh, mostly they're they're he's using them to express the idea that. Uh, that that something like the evacuation of Dunkirk or, or war in general is a number of small moving parts yes. with people who are experiencing it in different ways, essentially. Well, so you know? so it's a human version of the contraptions that his yes. films are that we're always talking about. Totally, and yeah. and I actually think it does have. In some ways, this is it's it's a film of contradictions because I do think that in some ways this is one of his most streamlined and his most action driven and his mm-hmm. least character driven films right i think that it really i mean I, I i almost would say this thing could work as a silent movie but then you would lose the amazing sound design yeah i think it could the music work. is so cool too oh the music is this yeah. that sort of ticking that, that, that he's sort of almost incorporating a ticking clock yeah. into the score yeah i really like um, the score of this movie a lot yeah uh but I think in general it could work almost wordlessly because what we're essentially seeing is we're seeing a series of little survival um, dilemmas mm-hmm. uh, that are all sort of interlocked. I mean, the movie is like one after another. I remember Nolan talking about during the production of film talking about how he asked uh, he asked the people, his crew, and people involved in the film to watch *The Wages of Fear*. Um, that classic of French cinema, yep. and uh, that is a film that is very much about a series of suspenseful, uh, suspenseful dilemmas that have to do with space and and with machinery. And I think there's a lot of that in Dunkirk as well. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I do think that this one has it, it's something about the way that he's. I, I think he's speaking to uh, the kind of universal fear that these characters are feeling. I think this thing does have a really strong human dimension as well. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that kind of uh, is related to what you were saying about a war being made up of all these individual uh, human dilemmas, life or death situations. And this film does do a good job of taking that from the macro to the or the micro to the macro over the course of the you know the different storylines. Totally, and um, I think when he ties it together at the end, when we when we sort of get that Churchill speech that one of them is reading off of a newspaper and mm-hmm. you realize that the film has been kind of a tribute to the sacrifice of these soldiers and this notion that survival in war is its own virtue just mm-hmm. just living yeah and and um and sort of the the resilience of the british people and the strength yeah. of uh, it's very uh there's a lot of pride in england in this movie it chokes me up a little bit honestly yeah. and even though i have no real connection to uh, to British culture or anything, uh, not not a like a a very explicit one or anything. Right. I, I find the way that he puts a, a puts a bow on this film and the way that mm. this sort of eleventh hour unifying uh, around uh, around the emotions and the dramas of this situation. Because throughout it plays, it, I mean, it basically is like a, it's a suspense contraption in a lot of ways. Right. But. I think but he I very agree with smartly, you. It's more human. I agree with it, yeah. you that it's way more human than Inception for sure. Oh yeah. Even yeah. though there are there are you could argue that the characters in Inception are more well rounded than these nameless than the nameless ones we meet in Dunkirk. Sure, but um, the, like I, I I guess that their their circumstances gives them like the the the, the, di- the dire nature of the circumstances is sort of a shortcut to emotional depth. I guess yeah. in this situation. And and I think also it has to do with the fact. That, I mean, I think a, a lot of war movies want to immerse you in the headspace of the soldiers but mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's a lot that make you feel the the 
urgency and the stress of the situation quite like this mm -hmm. one does. Yeah, yeah, as opposed to the visceral fear. Although mm -hmm. there are a few shots in it, like there's a shot towards the beginning of the film uh, where there's a soldier laying on the beach and you see a bunch of bodies and then uh, bombs start dropping from above. The Germans are dropping bombs mm -hmm. on the beach where all the soldiers are. And you see, and, and there's like this one shot that it, it, it uh, got me strangely, uh, where, you know, the, the camera's focus, the focus is on the soldier in the front, but behind him there's all these bodies laying on the beach and then these bombs drop and then the bodies aren't there anymore. And there was something about that that I found really like, I, I just mean that it was really, it was visceral, I guess. It was like a visceral okay. moment of, um, yeah, you know, just the reality of uh, a person being there and then a, a second later they're not there anymore. And then being gone. Yeah, just yeah, totally like, eradicated. Totally yeah. eradicated, right. Not even their bodies laying there. They're in pieces right. all over the place. Yeah. yeah. Just their, 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 even their body doesn't exist anymore. Like, right. It got under my skin a little bit. I don't know. I like, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a cool shot. That, that's fucked up, though. <laughs> I mean, there there are tons of little moments of horror in this yeah. thing that that yeah. I that are sort of imprinted on my brain. There's one moment that um, you know I talk about sound design. There's one moment when um, a ship is basically it's uh, it's basically been pushed, so it's leaning against the dock, mm -hmm. and you hear somebody screaming down below, and you realize that somebody is being crushed between the ship and the dock, Ooh. and we we don't see the person, we just hear it, and it's. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of horror in that. Yeah, you know? there's a lot. Um, yeah, uh, well, th it's interesting because, um, like, there is a lot of horror. Like, I would love to see Christopher Nolan tackle the horror genre proper because he does have, you know, there's, like, elements of some of his films that are scary. And like you said, there's, like, in, in this one, there's a little moments like that. I'd be, cur I'd be curious to see what he did with, you know, make a what's it out of a horror movie. I think that would be pretty cool. Yeah, I have no idea what a Christopher Nolan, like a, a, a no idea, a I have bona fide no horror movie from him would look like, you know? Yeah, I can't even um, picture it. Be interesting. Even though he, even though he does sci-fi, which is, you know, they're cousins. Yeah, even they are. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I have no idea what that would look like. Yeah, well, I think yeah. Dunkirk does suggest that he could, um, he could at least. Uh, instill a feeling of, of stress or paranoia in us. Yeah, yeah. Definitely stress or paranoia and definitely um, activate the fight, or, the fight or flight instinct. I think rewatching Dunkirk, I, I, I think that this is his most accomplished piece of filmmaking, mm. I will say. Um, it's not necessarily my favorite Nolan film, but it's up there, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, we've talked over the last few weeks about him, him evolving as a, a visual storyteller. Right. I think this one is somebody who is so confident in the way that he is filming action and so confident with his editing. And uh, I think this, this whole thing is a testament to his ability, his, his growing abilities as somebody who can orchestrate this kind of large scale spectacle. Yeah, so now we've reached the end of the road. We haven't been able to see Tenet yet, so we uh, can't discuss that on the podcast just yet. But so that that's it. That's our four-part series on Christopher Nolan. Yay. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so I'm curious, Dowd, when we went into this, when we first talked about doing this series, um, I knew you were a fan of Christopher Nolan, and you talked with a lot of passion about his movies on this podcast. And I just wonder if revisiting them like this, you know, back-to-back -back and diving into them and discussing them, if if it um, enhanced your appreciation or changed it in any way for his work? Uh, well, I actually think it, all of his movies, in some respect, kind of improved for me, to be mm -hmm. honest. Um, mm -hmm. The only one that I watched and thought... Um, that I might actually have had a uh, a diminished feeling, a diminished opinion of, might have been Batman Begins. But okay. um, I think that's partially because I had not seen that in years, and and it looks like such a dry run to the to the other two Batman films in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I gained a new appreciation. I mean, I'm I'm going to repeat myself again because uh, we, we're hitting a lot of we're hitting a lot of these same points again as we go through this whole series and we talk about different films but sure. i think um i really that that the, the sort of prevailing negative notion about his work that it has no uh it, that it has no emotional dramatic impact mm -hmm. that it's all mm -hmm. just clever mm -hmm. for clever's sake and that he makes these icy exercises i just watch rewatching these films really uh really solidified my mind that i i don't think that's true and that i think that um well he is i do think that a lot of his films are about trying to reconcile his kind of um his kind of cerebral interests in things like yeah. time 
and a human story. And he's not always successful. Again, I think Inception is the prime example of, a, of him not really finding a way to make this, this clockwork contraption into something that we care about in any kind of uh, human or emotional way. Yeah. Um, but a lot of them have improved for me in that particular regard, including something like Interstellar, which uh, I think wears its emotions on its sleeve. But when I figured out what, what I thought the film is really about, it really clicked for me in that way. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think I, I maybe walked away from this rewatch with a greater appreciation of his work. How about you? Cool. Um, I would say I think uh, the the point you made about the criticism, uh, I would agree with that because I think people are kind of conflating intellectual with cold and they're mm-hmm. not necessarily the same thing. You know, uh, these movies are definitely intelligent, but I don't think that they are. Um, I'm just going to be profane about it. I don't think they're far that far up their own ass in terms of their intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I walked away from this. Um, you know, I I all I see Christopher Nolan movies. Obviously, you know, everybody does. He's a big director, but I wouldn't call myself, you know, like a bit like I wouldn't have called myself like much of a fan. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I think I walked away with it with less of an emotional uh, reaction than you had. I do think his movies are uh, what's-its. You know, they're, they're devices. They're mm-hmm. machines. You wind up and let them go a lot of the time. But I gained a lot of respect and appreciation for the, um, the storytelling behind that and the skill of the storytelling that makes that happen. And I think that maybe that is the, the, the more uh, human element of it that I connected to as opposed to, you know, uh. say like uh, the theme, you know, like the skill, like, like I appreciate Christopher Nolan as a storyteller more after doing this. And that's all we've got for you this week, and that concludes our Christopher Nolan series. You can find earlier episodes on our feed if you need to catch up. While you're there, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Film Club, wherever you get your podcasts. But before we go, we also want to let you know about a new AV Club podcast premiering this week called Push the Envelope. On Push the Envelope, AV Club editors and celebrity guests discuss the Emmys, Oscars, Grammys, Golden Globes, and more. From dream nominations to current snubs and surprises to favorite moments from past ceremonies, if someone's handing out trophies, they're talking about it. We'll share their first episode on our feed, but don't forget to subscribe to Push the Envelope, also wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode of Film Club was hosted by me, Alex Dowd, and by Katie Reif. It was produced and edited by Carl Blumberg. Our sound mixer and finishing editor is Seth Hafer, and our motion graphics designer is Julie Mullins. Please join us next week for an all-new episode. Bye!